well, I have got two, six weeks or whatever uh, left here. But this morning, we're not going to talk about my going. We're talking about his coming. There's 7.53 billion people in the world. Uh, 33% of them have claimed to follow Christ. So if you think about that, I mean, I, I, generally speaking, right, in the United States of America, count off three people, the third one's life has been changed by Christ. In Afghanistan, one out of three. In Puerto Rico, one out of three. In Iceland, one out of three. In Uganda. I mean, this Jesus coming changed the whole world. I mean, empires and nations and myriads of, of individual eternal destinies have been shifted. And so what amazes me at Christmas time is so we, we take that life-changing event as Christians, and it's easy to kind of second-class that one and shift it over, or focus over to a emotionally charged, magical, mythological sort of deal. Now, now let me caveat here, because several years ago, I... I Preaching, I used an illustration uh, about Santa Claus from uh, an engineer's perspective, right? And it didn't exactly validate all of the North Pole narrative. And so I had parents running their prepubescence out of here and going into damage control mode. And I received not a few uh, emails and notes, you know, questioning my discernment on such a thing. So I'm not going to bash Santa. I love Santa. I got Santa and I, we grew up. Uh, my kids, I made sure they had Santa. But think, just think, let's just, we just want to think about the Santa story for a second and the, the real Christmas story. Uh, who knows when the Santa thing started? I mean, as a kid, you really didn't care, right? As long as you got your stuff, it really didn't matter. But maybe for, forever. Who knows when this was going on? And on Christmas Eve, this guy would, would pack his sleigh pulled by eight or nine magical flying reindeer, and he would fill it with Games and toys and gaming systems and sporting equipment and clothes and makeup and underwear and all kinds of stuff. And it just so happened when he hit every home of every good boy or girl on the planet that night that its sizes matched and the colors matched. It's just, I never really questioned how you could pull this off in one night. You know, it's magical. It's Santa. Of course you can do this. My question was with Santa's philosophy. If you think he, Santa was kind of a scary guy, actually, because he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. He sees you when you're sleeping, right? And he knows when you're awake and he's making a list. You know, I did not like that because my naughty list was pretty intense, in all honesty. And so I'm thinking, geez, Louise, this is not good. And then Santa's philosophy is, you better be good for goodness sake. And the word was clearly, if you're not good... <laughs> You get nothing. And he's gonna, my, I was told all the, all the time as a kid, Santa's gonna fly right over this house Christmas. You know, I would get nothing because I was, I was bad. I thought, oh, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, now, the goofy thing is, I knew my naughty list, and yet, somehow, Santa still produced the goods, and so I thought, well, he's really not as omniscient as people say he is. I mean, how could he be? There's a lot of kids to try to take care of. And, or maybe he just really doesn't care. Either way, I got my stuff. Guess the Christmas, it's Santa. Got it. Think about the real, historical, non-fiction Christmas story. And remember, this one's real, historical nonfiction Christmas story. Once upon a time, there was God. And God lived 
in perfect peace and joy within the Trinity, needing nothing, 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 nothing. Outside of the dimensions of space and time must have been their own God dimension somewhere. But then God, at one point, speaks the word and creates all the universe, which is pretty big, right? I mean, gazillions of stars and galaxies and everywhere. And then for whatever reason, God, this one itty-bitty planet and this itty-bitty solar system and this itty-bitty galaxy amongst billions he takes an interest in and decides to create man there in his image on that little planet for fellowship with himself he's but but then man starts going south and rebels and you think the universe is so big god could just you know i'm done let's just start all over again or i don't even need to do that let's just forget it but for whatever reason holy infinite eternal god decides to go to that itty bitty speck of a planet and so an angel, heavenly being, talks to this junior high kid and says, God has chosen you. And so somehow God comes over this girl. She finds herself having never been with a man and yet expecting. And so almighty, eternal, infinite God becomes a holy embryo. I mean, he's not going to become God, right? A holy single cell. This is God. And then when he's born, he's an infinite infant and and what he's going to do is he's, he didn't come to bring us plastic and cardboard and stuff that's not going to satisfy he's come that we would have life and have it abundantly he knows we have a problem that we can't fix we don't even know we have this problem but we can't fix it he's the only one who can it's going to cost him his life but he's coming to give it for us and when you when you compare the real historical christmas story and the the uh, Gene Autry, Hollywood version. Which one is more amazing? I mean, amazes me is that Hollywood, with all of the best, with all their creativity, they can't even come up with something, fake something, make-believe something that challenges truth, real thing. It's not possible. And so, again, we, we want to change out stories. Now, you, you know, it's interesting, God... And Santa are kind of alike in some ways, right? They're both omniscient. They're both they're both omnipresent. Uh, they're both kind of, in one sense, they're making a list. They both know if you've been good or bad. They both know. But here's the difference. If you're not good, Santa's not coming. With God, he's coming because we're bad. Matter of fact, if we were good, he wouldn't need to come. He's coming because we have a problem that we can't fix. He's the only one who can fix it. It's an it's amazing cor- correlation. He comes for, for broken type people, people like Alan. Alan B., actually. Alan B. terrorized my junior high school. He terrorized myself. Um, this is 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Alan B. was in my homeroom, 6th and 7th grade. Um, Alan was a scary kid. Now, he wasn't just scary because he wore black T-shirts with skulls and black jeans and chains and motorcycle boots. This wasn't. He was scary because he was unpredictable. I mean, Alan would come in on sixth grade, right? He'd come to school either stoned or drunk or hungover in sixth grade. Alan did not care if he got hurt. I watched Alan 
jump a gang of bullies in the school by himself, swinging, just kind of going ballistic on these guys. It was normal to hear him beating the tar out of some little innocent kid. Alan didn't care how badly he got hurt. He didn't care if he was killed, and he didn't care if you were hurt or were killed either. He didn't care if the police came knocking on his door, which they kind of did on a regular basis. He didn't care if he was suspended regularly, which he was. I remember watching Alan walk out the front doors of school, get into the car with some of his high school buddies, drive around the block a few times, and then come back in. This was Alan's life. Now, the problem with junior high Alan's is they become high school Allens, and then college Allens, and then um, co-worker Allens, neighbor Allens, and sometimes, God forbid, they come, become spouse Allens. And so what do you do with the Allens in your life? Do you have any? Other than just wish they wouldn't be there, what do you do with these Allens that are in our lives? Now, um, maybe, uh, let me, let me, let me, let me, Turn this 180 for a second. What do you do if you're one of the Allens? Uh, now, you got to know some stuff about Allen. See, Allen does not have a problem, he thinks. Everyone else has the problem. Allen is just trying to defend himself and protect himself, and everyone else is a conspiracy, and they're against me. And so Allen is just, maybe Allen, maybe, he's been dealt a pretty bad hand. Maybe he has experienced some injustice or betrayal or rejection in life. Maybe he, maybe he tried to do the equations in, in school, but you know what? Nobody at home even cared if he was there. The only reason he's there is because of the law. Uh, uh, he's too prideful to ask anyone for help, and if he did, they wouldn't give it to him, so he's given up on that a long time ago. Same thing with reading, same thing with anything academic. That's not on the radar. Nobody cares. Maybe Alan's never really been loved before i I found that uh allens that i've come across in life you know some of them no doubt most allens seem to have a rain cloud following them that rain cloud can be depression uh maybe they're upset a little bit that why do they have to deal with this no one else does maybe it's a handicap maybe it's a limitation that's other people they they afraid might find out about but it's limiting them maybe it's a hurt and scar that they did not do anything to get it just came looking for them maybe it was an addiction and they did mess up when they were younger but for crying out loud haven't they paid their dues they can't they just have this rain cloud following them and they know that if there is a god and if he is omniscient and if if he is omnipresent and if he is making a list then obviously he knows that they're pretty much a big loser he, he knows that yeah he knows that they're, they're they're convinced of that so so what do you do with the Allens in your life. Well, it's, there's a Christmas story, believe it or not, about Allens. So if you've got your Bibles, if you turn with me, Luke chapter 2. We call these guys shepherds. But uh, they are Allens. I'm going to pick it up in verse Beginning in, in verse 8, now let me give you the background. I really shouldn't be missing verses 1 through 7 because in 1 through 7, just so you know, they, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and Jesus is born. So it's kind of a big thing, right? But, but so, so get that picture. Jesus is born. He's hanging out in the stable in Bethlehem. And in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region, it's the region of Bethlehem, there were shepherds 
out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherding had been a noble profession, especially in Judaism, if you think about this. Abraham was a shepherd, and Isaac and Jacob, they were nomads. It's all you did with life. King David was a shepherd. So there's this. But by the time you get to the New Testament, shepherding has fallen in disrepute. It is reserved for the lowest caste, really, in, in Judaism. These guys uh, have got a horrific reputation at this point. They've got the toughness of the Marines. You know, they've got to defend against um, predatory animals, against thieves. They're fighting amongst themselves on a regular basis. They've got the scruples of the Hells Angels. They've got the reputation of the Mafia. I mean, these guys were just, just mean guys. These guys weren't your high roller scum, you know, like the tax gatherers. These guys were poverty-type scum. And what really threw them in disrepute had nothing to do with their socioeconomics because basically everybody's poverty at this point. But it was because they were considered unclean. And you you all grew up in the church. You know what that, that is. Old Testament, there were these rules about being unclean. And that didn't mean you didn't take a bath, although it actually could be a part of that. It was... Some usually external things that happened to you that reflected an internal reality, see. And so if you were, had this unclean thing going externally, then you were, it was a sign that you were internally unclean, not acceptable to God. So it's kind of a big thing. And so, so uh, for example, shepherds, by the very nature of their business, have to deal with diseased and animals with open wounds, That's huge, unclean. You can't get involved and touch blood. That was like a big, unclean thing in in Judaism. They would have to deal with dead animals. Death was the biggest unclean thing. You can't go near death. They had to go near death. They had to, unfortunately, be associated with the feces of the animals. Very, 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 very unclean. And, And here's the deal. Because you were unclean, what that meant is you could not go to the temple. Now, just real quick, in, in Jerusalem, Judaism, there was one temple. There's always, always only been one, one temple. Okay, lots of synagogues. We've got one down here on, on Zuck. If you've seen it, though, the uh, new synagogue there. But synagogues were kind of like churches for, for us. You'd go there and you'd learn Torah, but you could not sacrifice at a synagogue. Oh, no, 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 no. One place you could sacrifice. That was the temple. You could not sacrifice anywhere else. And when you sacrificed... That's when you had redemption. That's when atonement was made. That's when suddenly you were back on par with, you could talk with God. That's why when Jesus said, my house, talking about the temple, will be called a house of prayer. He wasn't talking about all the synagogues. He's talking about the temple because once you sacrificed, you are now in a right relationship with God. You can commune with him again. And so, so, so the, the shepherds, you see this? They can't go to the temple. Because they're unclean. They can't sacrifice. They have no redemption. They have no atonement. They're on the outside looking in. They have no relationship with God. That's just the way it is. Stings to be a shepherd. This is where they were at. Well, these guys, these shepherds in our story, are are the same region. Uh, They were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You know, their suburb, right? Bethlehem, suburb of Jerusalem, the temple temple they sacrificed at least twice a day 
that was just required by the temple. But every pilgrim that came through Jerusalem is buying a, a sheep or a goat or a bull, according to what the, their sacrificial issue is. And then they were sacrificing. So you get hundreds being sacrificed daily. And then on the high holy days, myriads of sacrifices. And so the temple folk knew they had to have a, a good amount of flocks all ready for... To, it was their cash flock, basically. They had to sell this, and this is how they made money. And so they had to be prepared. And tradition says that these shepherds were watching over sacrificial flocks, which is kind of fascinating, isn't it? That these guys who are watching these sheep and helping these sheep be born that will go to the altar and be killed are going to be the ones that watch the Lamb of God born and who will basically put them out of a job, who will do away with the sacrificial systems. These guys are... Are, are keeping watch of the sacrificial flocks at night. In verse 9 it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, this is, is, is probably Gabriel. We talked about him. Remember, his wings got to be sore by this point. There had been no angel sighting for 500 years, and suddenly this guy is going, this angel, is going to Zechariah. Then he's going to Mary. Matthew 1, he's going to go to Joseph. We didn't talk about that. And now he's here. But think about his assignments. He goes to Zechariah, just inches from the holiest place, holy of holiest place, holy of holies, the holiest place on planet earth, talking to one of the leaders of the nation of Israel, a righteous man, Zechariah. And Gabriel's got to be thinking, this is right. If there's an assignment for an angel, I got to go talk to a human. This is the right thing. Next assignment, he's got to go talk to Mary, Nazareth. It's like, well, Nazareth, what is can any good thing come out of Nazareth, right? So he, but he goes and he meets Mary and Mary's a godly girl. Mary's got it happening. Mary is going to be the mother of the Messiah. So he's thinking, yes, this was a good assignment. Yeah, that's good. And then Matthew 1, he's got to go talk to Joseph who was a righteous man. So that was a good thing. Next assignment, he's got to come to the shepherds. These scallywag people, these, these, these religiously ostracized, culturally anathematized, you know, ethically suspect, you know, they're akin to a Southern California motorcycle gang type of group of people. And, he, and you gotta, Gabriel's got to be saying, you know, you got the wrong address here. God, am I supposed to be talking to these guys here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, you can't miss this, this part. So, so huge. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, glory is one of those Bible church words that often we just skip over every time we read it. But glory is a huge theme in Scripture. In, in Exodus 33, check, check this out. You got, you got Moses, he's talking to the Lord. And he says, please, Lord, show me your glory. That's his request. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face, which he equates with glory, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with the, my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you'll see my back. But my face you shall not see. Now, in the Old Testament, there are the three biggies in the Old Testament. There's Abraham and Judaism. You got Moses, and you, and you got David. There's the three biggies. And, and some would argue that Moses is actually the top of the pile because Moses, one of the very few people in the Old Testament who could do miracles... 
Moses is the one who, who grew up in the, the palace in Egypt. So he was literate. He was more educated than just about anybody at that time. Moses was the one God tapped on the shoulder to lead the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage through the Red Sea. Moses gets some credit for that one. Moses is the one who goes up on the mountain and comes down with the Ten Commandments. He's the giver of the law. Moses is the one who comes down with the, with the blueprints for the tabernacle temple, how God could be among his people. Moses, the scripture says, is the most humble man in the whole world ever existed. Scripture says that Moses could speak to God as a man does his friends. So Moses was, was about as good as you're going to get in the Old Testament. Isn't this amazing? And Moses says, let me see your glory. And God says, no. He says, says, Moses, you don't know what you're talking about. As good as you are. You see it, you're going to be vaporized, man. You just, just, there's something in, in your sin that's just not going to work. And I think what Luke is telling us is this. He, he, he's, he's saying, as good as the Old Testament, as the Old Covenant was, it was a great system. It was the best they could have, but it was deficient. And so when glory is coming to these angels, are these shepherds, these scallywag guys, the message is real clear that, 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 who the greatest saints in the Old Testament could not have, could not see, you can. Glory was was face-to-face encounter with God. It was intimacy with God, unlike other. It was pure relationship with God. And what the angels are saying is this baby that's being born, whoever he is, whatever he's got going on, you need to know that suddenly people like you, shepherds, see the glory of God can have a relationship with God, not because of how good you were, not because your nice list is bigger than your naughty list, but because of who he is. The glory of God shown around them. That's uh, amazing. It says in verse 13, we're going to skip, we'll come back in a second, if you're following your Bible. But verse 13 and 14, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Whoa. I wonder if the angels had that going on. (laughs) Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Am I dropping? All right. All right. Just just, just keep our minds on God's words where we need to be. Um, Now, this is interesting. I love these verses because... Because, you know, the angel, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, just challenging my sanctification. That's okay, let's just keep going. <laughs> the, in verses 10 through 12, what the angel does is the angel delivers this message. Real important. He, he delivers this message to the shepherds. But this is really not part of the message. This is like a parenthesis. This is one of these things you look at and you go, why is this here? What is happening? And what I believe was going on is, is the angels... Had, had seen when God created the world. God created the angels. Then the, God, then the angels watched God create the, the world. And they watched God's glory with, with people. And then they watched the fall. And that was all disappeared. And they watched the, the breakdown in, in humanity. And they watched people like Moses want it and can't get it. And then they watched God come among people, Emmanuel, back to a relationship with God's glory. And I think the angels are just... 
It's just several commentators have said that the, the gates of heaven opened and all of the angels just came flooding out because this is it. This is the time. There's just so much joy and excitement. And they're not playing with the shepherds' minds. I mean, look at the message that they give. It says that God's peace will be among those with whom God is favored. Can you imagine? The angels aren't playing with their, the, the shepherds' minds. They're not saying that, yeah, God's peace will come to those with whom God is favored, but he doesn't favor you, stinks to be you, shepherds. That's not what the angels are doing. The inference is God's peace is coming to those with whom he is favored. And you know what? God is favored with you. That's a huge thing. They had never heard that before. With us. We're shepherds. We're unclean. No, no, God's favor is with you. That's big. And so look back at the message then that, that the, uh, Gabriel gives them. In verse 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you good news. Yes, this is good news of great joy. Joy is going to change your life, your disposition radically here. That will be for all the people, for unto you, shepherdy people. Allens is born this day in the city of David, a savior. You need one. You don't know it, but you do. Who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. A manger. You know, this is, this is, there's no Old Testament prophecy that says Jesus has to be born in a, a stable, a barn. He has to be born in Bethlehem. But there's no prophecy that says he's got to be born in a barn. He could have been born in a, in a home in, in Bethlehem, a relative's home. That would have been poverty. That would not have been, you know, high class stuff. But why? So why the barn? I think that Luke is doing more than just re, repeating history here. He's certainly doing that, but I think much more. Uh, have you ever come across somebody very very famous you know you just see them on tv and stuff but for whatever reason you're in the right place and all of a sudden the cadillac escalade rolls in and several roll in on either side of it and before the guy in the middle gets out the people there's like five or six people and the other ones that jump out and they got their black suits on and the little black glasses and then the person jumps out of the one in the middle and you recognize i can't get any closer they're there to make sure you can't get any closer there's just a huge gap. But let's just say you're able to get closer. And so you, you get closer. And you look at their clothing. And you're going, oh, man. I didn't know there was clothing like this. And you look at the jewelry that they're wearing. And you're going, is that real? And of course, you know it is. And so even if you're face to face, there's a gap. A huge gap, right? Jesus, God, Emmanuel is coming to shepherdy types. I'm guessing that if a shepherd's going to feel comfortable indoors anywhere, he's going to feel comfortable indoor in a stable. This is in the same vicinity. Now, I'm just projecting here. I know, I know, I know I'm just projecting, but maybe this very stable, they had been in before multiple times, maybe this very stable, some of them were born in as well. So it's not strange for poverty maybe some of these shepherds built this manger. I think what God is doing is he's breaking down all of the, the barriers that could possibly be erected between the shepherds and their Messiah, 
who came for them. Now, we, we just can't read our romanticized 21st century antiseptic hyper hygiene view into this, right? Because the manger, if the inn is full, the parking garage is going to be packed, right? And so the shepherds get there and there are faces of all these animals that they recognize, feel very comfortable with. Flies probably everywhere smell. They're, they're very familiar with all of this. They see this baby in the manger in this, this refugee poverty stricken couple. I, I, I can imagine the shepherds are going, who would have thought? The Messiah King, God, he's one of us. And Jesus, one of his favorite titles for himself was shepherd, good shepherd. He was really associating with this guy. He would do one day, he would lay down his life for, the, for his flock, what the shepherds were supposed to do for theirs. He would walk in the prophecy of King David the shepherd, which is what they did. His reputation, Jesus, would be suspect among the establishment, which is where they were. Jesus is really associating with these guys. And one of the things I think that, I think that Luke is telling us especially, he's letting Theophilus know, he's letting us know that Jesus came for, from his birth, for shepherdy types. It's not like he came for everyone else and then he also is nice to shepherdy types. No, no, he came for shepherdy types. I mean, if you think about Jesus' life, he's going to uh, be touched by the woman with the issue of blood. Very, very unclean. Very unclean. And he's going to defend the woman caught in adultery. Mm, that wasn't the. And then he's, he's going to uh, touch uh, Mary Magdalene, cast out seven demons. That was an unclean thing. And then he's going to hang out with the demoniac of the Gerasenes, 1,000 demons, and cast those out. That's a very unclean thing. And he was going to touch lepers, and he was going to touch dead people and raise them unclean, unclean. And so what Luke is letting us know from the beginning is this was his mission Emmanuel, God with shepherdy types. That's why he came. That's who he reached out to. Um, 1990, uh, there was a gal. She and her fiancé, they were getting married. And uh, they were going to pull all stops. They went to the Boston Hyatt, uh, secured the Boston Hyatt for their reception. They ordered the best china and, you know, all these things that cost you a gazillion dollars. So they they, they got all that, secured it. Back in 1990, it was $13,000. That was the tab that that, that the Hyatt was charging them. Uh, Deposit of half $6,500 due now. So they paid their deposit. They went on their way, doing life. The day they were supposed to send out the wedding invitations, the groom gets cold feet, pulls out and says, you know what, I don't think this is right, we're done. Leaves the girl to put everything together, clean up the mess. So she's canceling with all of her vendors. She goes to the Hyatt, she explains everything. They're very sad. Oh, we're so, so sorry. We're so sorry. But fine print says that the deposit's non-refundable. So you've got two options. You can either just you know, lose your deposit or you can go ahead with the party. And so she started thinking, and several years earlier, she went through a tough stretch. It's a true story, I'm told. T- tough stretch. She uh, decides to go ahead with this party because when she had gone through a hard time, she was uh, homeless. She lived in one of the shelters. And, and so she changed up her guest list and invited all these, these people from the shelters and from the mission and from the, the guys on the park bench. So, so you can imagine this, this warm June night at the Boston Hyatt. 
you got all these hobos and bag people coming to the Hyatt. And they're used to hanging out on benches and they are being served champagne by tuxedo-clad waiters. And they're used to eating cold pizza crust that they found in the garbage. And they're dying on chicken cordon bleu and, and the best champagne. And they're dancing the night away to, to the best Boston dance bands. And uh, party made for a king, right? But the people invited. It's the shepherdy types. That's a picture. That's a picture of us, of what's going on. This is this is, this is true. Is between my junior and senior year of college, I'm at my church, suburb of Chicago, summertime, small church. I was like seventy people in the morning. This was a Sunday evening service, so there are probably about forty-five, fifty of us there. And we only got like two visitors a year in this in this little church. Yeah. So when they came, we all we all everybody in the church knew it. And this this specific evening, we got one of our annual visitors. And so we're, we're hanging out at, at the church, and all of a sudden I see him come in, and, and he's got a uh, very pretty girlfriend. I think that's probably what I noticed first. But he comes in, and, and he's, you know, looking sharp. He's about my age. He's wearing a suit. And uh, I think, man, this guy looks familiar. I'm trying to think, where did I, where have I seen this guy? But so I go up to him. I start talking to him. He's in Bible college. He loves the word of God. He wants to be a pastor. He wants to shepherd God's people. And I say, you know, you look very familiar. What, what's your name? He said, Alan B. I said, Alan B. And I'm staring him down. No, this was him. <laughs> so I, I shouldn't have said this, I'm sure. But I did something along the line. You know, I expected at this point you'd be in prison, Alan. And he just kind of <laughs> smiled. And he said, you know, that was a very uh, tough time of my life. Uh, I think it was uh, no mom, alcoholic, dad, very abusive situation. Uh, but... As he told me his story, he said that somewhere along the line, that most people were very afraid of him, and they should have been, but he came across someone who wasn't. And that kind of scared him, that somebody wasn't afraid of him. And as they developed a relationship, the person shared Christ with this guy. And Alan, at some point, just stopped. He said he, said he saw his sin for what it was. He'd always thought it was justified in me protecting myself. and blah, And then he realized... What he'd done. And he realized God's grace. And he couldn't believe this idea that God came for shepherdy types like him. And he surrendered his life to Christ. So let me ask you this. What do you do with the Allens, the shepherdy types in your life, other than wish they weren't there? Is it possible, just possible, that God has placed them there because that's who he came for? And I, I wonder, I wonder this, you know, this is just something we always have to remind ourselves. What if God sends shepherdy types to FAC? And they come in, and the first thing we notice is their clothing or their, you know, skull t-shirts or whatever else. Are they going to hear an angel choir saying, fear not, man, this is for you. This place is for you. The gospel is for you. Oh, yeah, you'll love it. Or are they going to hear, see, experience? Something that just reminds them, you know what, this is, God's not for me. Church is not for me. That, that's a good question we should ask ourselves on a weekly basis. If God sends us, what, what do you do with the Allens in your life? Let me go to 180. What do you do if you're the Allen? And I'll, externally, of course, we look cool, right? We're dressed all right. People think we're fine. But inside, we know. We know. And we really got the Santa Claus philosophy going on. We like Christmas. It needs to be once a year because we get our, our thing that we thought, man, I really need this thing. 
and it's cool and it lasts us for a little bit, but by next Christmas, you know what? We need another something else, don't we? Because it's just, just and it works with relationships and promotions and everything else. I need, I need, and but then when we get it, ah, it's not, it's not. And so to trade off the Santa Claus philosophy for the real Christmas, where Christ came, Emmanuel, God with us, to give us what only He could to fix our brokenness like only he could, to forgive our sin like only he can. And no question in my mind, if Gabriel was here this morning, if he was sent to us, he would look at each of us, and he would say, hey, you shepherdy types, pointing to all of us. He would say, for you, that Savior was born. For you, a Savior, you need it. You don't think you need the Savior was born for you. Go see. The shepherds couldn't just say, oh, that's good information. Thanks, I'll sit back. No, no, they had to go. And so maybe this morning, you've heard before, but you need to go to him. And you go to him and you can go to him in, in, in prayer just by confessing your, your sin, thanking him for the gift and surrendering your life to him. Would you, I want to give you a chance. Would you, would you bow your head and pray with me for just a minute? And if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you certainly can this morning. Yes, you're a shepherdy type. The Bible says that all of us, our righteousness is as filthy rags. The amazing story of the God of the universe who came to be with us wants to be with you. And so where you sit, he knows what you're thinking. You can come to him, confess your sins, and ask him to take control of your life. Lord, thank you for that gift we take for granted. I do. And so many shiny, useless things we, in our wrong thinking, put ahead of you. So I pray for forgiveness there. This season, God, would we enjoy it? Would we enjoy it? But would you work in our hearts that we might keep you, Lord, your relationship with us that you desire. You desire us to see your glory. This is why you came. Would you help us to keep that first and foremost? And God, for this offering that we're about to take up now, would you use it, please, to get this message to a world that, that uh, is so infected with the Santa Claus men- mentality? Would you, would you, our kids, eerie and beyond, would you use it to get the real historical truth of Christmas out? I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.